Truly, do we want God to have his way in our lives? Believing him? In the book of Ezekiel, that has been a message that has been a theme, as has been in Jeremiah's. In fact, surprise of surprises, it's throughout the whole Bible. And there is so much peace that is promised when we let him direct our lives and lead us in his perfect way. Well, as we begin this morning, let's just begin with a word of prayer. Gracious God, we give thanks to you this day. We commit ourselves to you. Lord, I pray that as we open your word, as we learn from the prophecies, the visions of Ezekiel, I pray that we would be challenged and we would be encouraged. And in today's lesson, may we be reminded ever and anew that you are a God who keeps your promises and we can rest and hope in you. And so, Lord, be with us now and teach us, I pray, in your name, amen. Before we begin or as we begin, I have a question I wonder if you know without me showing you. Ezekiel was taken captive. Does anybody know in what year? Hannah, what year? 597 B.C. Is she correct? Is she correct? Is she correct? You think so? Well, let's take a look here. If we look again at our timeline, we see Ezekiel fitting in with all of the last of the kings, right? And you can see there, you see it? Yep. If we look a little bit closer, we learn about Ezekiel being called where he saw a vision of the Lord and he was called to be a watchman to his people, just as the watchman would be in a tower. But if we look at our timeline, we can see that he was actually carried away captive in 597 B.C., right here at the same time that Jehoiakim, the king, was carried away captive. Now, why is that so important? Well, it's important for us because there are a lot of prophecies given in the book of Ezekiel, and it's incredible to know when the prophecies were made, considering when some of them were were fulfilled. And throughout the life of Ezekiel, we get several different and significant dates given to us. Does anybody remember where we left off last week? Something happened, a terrible thing happened in Ezekiel's life, and it happened on a particular day. Hope, what happened? His wife died. Terrible thing. But what else happened that same day in Ezekiel's life? Anybody remember? The city of Jerusalem was besieged by Nebuchadnezzar's army. The Babylonians besieged Jerusalem on the same day that Ezekiel's wife died. Does anybody remember what commandment God gave to Ezekiel? regarding what he should and shouldn't do when his wife died? Bruce, he wasn't to cry. Wow, could you imagine when someone who is the dearest and most precious to you in your life dies, and if God told you not to cry? Well, the reason was is as a sign and a symbol to all of the people there in the captivity to show them that just as a man would love his wife, so God loved his people. And yet, because of their great wickedness, on this day of the beginning of the besiegement of the precious city, Jerusalem, the city of peace, that God would not turn back from the judgment. It would be as if he would not weep or mourn for the people, because judgment is coming. Now, Ezekiel is split up, and it has a very basic outline. Now, we've been learning in Jeremiah, and Jeremiah is really complicated, isn't it? Why is Jeremiah so complicated? Nothing's in order. Nothing's chronological. We jump from this king to this king, and then there's, we're on this topic, and we jump to this topic, and Jeremiah just, you'd think it's got all mixed up and scrambled up. Well, you know what? Ezekiel is almost exactly opposite. 
It is just one, two, three, four in order, laid out just in perfect order, at least for orderly minds like mine. We have chapters one through three in the book of Ezekiel that record for us the call of Ezekiel. That's when Ezekiel had his vision of the Lord. That's when Ezekiel was told to be a watchman, to watch and to warn people of danger. That's chapters 1 through 3 of Ezekiel. And then from chapter 4 through 24, we have warnings of coming judgment. Ezekiel warns the people, even though he's not even in Jerusalem or in Judah. He's a captive in faraway Babylon. He's warning the people. Judgment's coming. You know why? Because they still all have family back home. And in a little way, they're all hostages to make sure they behave. And he's warning of the judgment, and he's pleading with the people, trust God, trust God. Know the judgment's coming. If you want to live, see, judgment was coming but not everybody had to die. Not everybody it didn't have to be so cruel. It didn't have to be so miserable. But the people, because they continued in their abominations, they continued in their wickedness, the judgment was escalating. It was getting worse and worse. And so from chapters 1 through 3 was Ezekiel's call. Then from chapters 4 through 24, 20 chapters, are Ezekiel's sermons of warning. And at the end of Ezekiel chapter 24 is when Ezekiel's wife dies and Jerusalem is besieged. And do you know what changes? All of a sudden, on that very day, the messages of Ezekiel totally change. He no longer is dealing with judgment, judgments, and warning of judgments because of their sin. Well, at least not for Judah or Jerusalem, because from chapters 25 through 32, God uses Ezekiel to prophesy judgment upon the surrounding nations. Judgments pronounced against Ammon, Moab, Edom, the Philistia, Tyre, all of these cities and nations, Egypt, all receive announcements of judgment. So the first three chapters are Ezekiel's call. Then from chapter 4 through 24 are sermons, visions, and warnings to Judah, to Jerusalem, to Israel for their sins. And then from chapters 25 through 32 are warnings that are given to the surrounding nations of coming judgment. And then in 33, it's almost like we go back to the beginning of the book. Chapter 3 was about the watchman. Remember, I showed you the tower there, and God told Ezekiel, you're like a watchman who's in that tower, who's watching for an enemy and sounds the alarm when you see an enemy. Well, in chapter 3, God commanded Ezekiel to be a watchman. And you know what? Hereafter, he has summarized then the judgments upon Judah and Jerusalem, the judgments upon the surrounding nations. God goes back to chapter 3 in chapter 33. Isn't that easy to remember? Chapter 3 is about the watchman, and then chapter 33 is about the watchman. And God again reminds Ezekiel that he is a watchman. But you know what's intriguing? Again, in chapter 24, Ezekiel's wife died on the same day that Jerusalem was besieged by the Babylonian army. And you know, for the rest of the book, all the warnings of judgment for Israel seem to fade. In fact, from Ezekiel chapter 34 through 39, we begin to hear promises of restoration. Now, it's intriguing to me that before the city has even fallen, before the city has been destroyed and burned, Ezekiel is in Babylon preaching messages and sermons that the nation will be restored. The nation will be restored. And you know, it's not just in these chapters. In fact, of all the chapters from 4 to 24, he's been talking about little promises there too. 
Last week, I had so much to cover, I had to skip some. You know, we covered 24 chapters in one week. That's impressive, for me at least. Take, take your Bibles and look at one I had to skip that's really intriguing. Beautiful, beautiful promise in Ezekiel chapter 11. See, much of the warning has been to the people, you will be scattered. One of the reasons why he's told them to submit to the king, the king Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, is so that they wouldn't die and be so scattered. But God, in recognizing that they are disobeying and recognizing that they're continuing in their wickedness, knows they will be scattered. And look what it says here. God makes a little promise here in Ezekiel chapter 11 and verse 16. You might be one who was in Jerusalem or in Babylon, like Ezekiel, who believed in God who trusted in God, who longed to be able to go to the temple in Jerusalem and worship Jehovah there in the temple. You may be one like Daniel, who's living at this same time, who is a captive just like Ezekiel, longing to worship in the temple of Jerusalem. But he can't, because he's a hostage in the Babylonian palace to Nebuchadnezzar. We don't often think of him as a hostage, do we? But that's exactly what he was. Daniel was a hostage in Babylon. And he longed to be able to go to the temple of Jehovah and worship. Remember the good figs and the naughty figs of Jeremiah? He was one of the good figs. And he longed to worship. And I wonder how incredible this message, when he read it or heard it. You know, we, we learned about Jeremiah or Ezekiel having that sign and besieging the city. You know, we're just moved right on, right? We've just gone through 24 chapters in one week, and we're just moving right on. If we were back in those days, Ezekiel would still be there. Remember last week we talked about him there at the tile, besieging the city? I looked it up. He'd, ha- he'd be there every single day until, November, or until August 12th, 2023. That's a long time. So we're just moving right on. Ezekiel, you know, we had him sitting here for just a few hours one day, yes, last week, but yet he did that every day, every day for 430 days. Well, now here, imagine again Daniel. Imagine Ezekiel. Imagine other believers here in Babylon who wish they could go to the temple and worship their God. And then they hear the news. The temple has been destroyed. It's gone. There is no temple. The place where God chose to be his own, to establish his name, has been destroyed. Now imagine you hear this from Ezekiel, Ezekiel chapter 11, verse 16. Therefore say, God says to Ezekiel, thus saith the Lord God, although I have cast them far off among the heathen, and although I have scattered them among the countries, yet I will be to them as a little sanctuary in the countries where they shall come. You see, the temple, the sanctuary of the temple is about to be destroyed when this was given. And within a few short years, it was destroyed. But yet Ezekiel, through Ezekiel, God promises to all those who truly believe in him that no matter where they are scattered, he will be a sanctuary to them. That's the reason why Daniel, three times a day, came and he opened his windows towards Jerusalem. And he knelt down there in the sanctuary of the Lord. Notice who is the sanctuary, not what is the sanctuary. The Lord was his sanctuary that day. And that's why when even when the kings said nobody can ask of any god or person anything for 30 days, it did not phase 
Daniel because Daniel knew that his God was a sanctuary. And three times a day, he entered into his God, that little sanctuary, and prayed and worshiped. And it's here throughout the next many years that the synagogue was established. You heard the word synagogue? Oftentimes nowadays, when we think of Jewish people, we think of synagogues. Now, the people today who worship in synagogues, there's some problems there because those people do not recognize the greater son of David. They do not recognize their promised Messiah. But yet at the beginning of those synagogues, there were many who did truly believe, and they came to those synagogues. Jesus himself taught in synagogues. Little sanctuaries that they built of buildings but you see, it wasn't the buildings. You talk to Jews, and they'll look back here, and they'll say, see there, that's why we have synagogues, because we have these little sanctuaries scattered all around the world. But you know, it's not about the little building. It's about the Lord. So much of Ezekiel is about the Lord. Remember last Sunday morning, we learned about the abiding, dwelling presence of God in Jerusalem and how he reluctantly left at this time? As we continue on here today, we're going to find that that theme continues all the way. Well, I can't wait to not tell you. Turn to the very last page of Ezekiel. Can you do that? The very, very, very last page. And can you read with me the last phrase of the last verse in Ezekiel? You know, they've been bemoaning the fact that the presence of God, the glory of God, departed from Jerusalem. This is a prophecy yet future. And do you see what is stated and declared? Say it with me. The Lord is there. That is what it says will be the name of the city of Jerusalem in a day yet future when Jesus Christ will reign reign from Jerusalem, his throne. They will say the Lord is there. But I'm ahead of myself. Let's back back up. Ezekiel chapter 11, here we see it. God says, I will be a little sanctuary to you, no matter where you're scattered. Now, this is a promise made to the Jews, but you know, in a very real sense, there's a parallel to us because each one of us who have believed in the Lord Jesus Christ and been saved, it's not the same. It's different. For us, we actually become the temple. And the Holy Spirit of God himself moves inside of us. And he lives in us. And so that no matter where we go, no matter what we face, no matter what problems we have, God is right there with us, living inside of us. That's amazing. That's so exciting. Well, I told you that we had an overview of the book. Ezekiel's chapters 1 through 3 was Ezekiel's call. Chapters 4 through 24 was Ezekiel's sermons and messages and warnings of judgment to Judah. Chapter 24, his wife dies. And then in chapters 25 through 32 is warnings and messages to the nations surrounding Israel. Chapter 33 is a reminder of his call of being a watchman. And then, from chapters 34 to 39, are promises of restoration, that God will restore them. And then we have a very mysterious passage from Ezekiel chapter 40 through the end of the book, which goes into immense detail, kind of like the book of Leviticus, about a temple. And what's intriguing about it, it's a temple that has never been built. Specifications and details of it are radically different than the temple and the tabernacle described previously in Israel's history. We'll get to this a little bit later, but it's a temple, I believe, yet to be built, built when the Lord is there, when Jesus reigns from Jerusalem. In fact, the temple has no record of any Ark of the Covenant. No need to, because the actual one himself is reigning there from Jerusalem. And so this is a summary of the book of Ezekiel. And this morning, I'd like to go into one of those passages relating to the promise of the restoration. So if you take your Bibles and turn with me to Ezekiel chapter 37, God has a vision for Ezekiel, and it's a really kind of weird one. It's famous, though. 
although it's famously misunderstood. It is the vision of the valley of the dry bones. Some of you might think that sounds like a nightmare. I'll wait till you see some of the pictures I have. Well, not to scare you too bad, but you know, God takes Ezekiel to a valley filled with dry bones. In fact, it makes a point about them being very dry bones. They're dry, dry, die. That means dead, 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 dead bones. In the valley of the dry bones... Well, Ezekiel chapter 37, it says, And the hand of the Lord was upon me, Ezekiel writes, and carried me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the midst of the valley, which was full of bones, and caused me to pass by them round about. And behold, there were very many in the open valley, and lo, they were very dry. Dead, dead, dead bones. And he, the Lord, said unto me, Son of man, can these bones live? I love Ezekiel's response. What would you say if God showed you a valley full of dry, very dry bones and says, Son of man, can these bones live? You might think there and say, well, you know, it's common sense. Of course they don't live. They're dead. When somebody's dead, they're dead. Dry bones don't come to life. No, they can't live. <laughs> but I told you I loved Ezekiel's answer. Look what he says there in verse 3. And I answered, O Lord God, thou knowest. That's a good answer, you know, when sometimes you don't know the answer. So next time I ask a question and you're not sure you know, just raise your hand and when I call on you, you can say, Thou knowest. Maybe we should start doing that to get you to get in the habit of raising your hand. You think I ask hard questions. Check out this one. The Lord asked Ezekiel, will these very dry bones live? And Ezekiel says, thou knowest. Again, he said unto me, prophesy unto these bones, and say unto them, O ye dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Huh? What would you have done if you were Ezekiel that day, and God brings you to the vision of all these dry bones and says, preach to them? A specific sermon. Why? Look at the sermon. Verse 5. Thus saith the Lord. This is the sermon to preach to the dead bones. Thus saith the Lord God unto these bones. Behold, I will cause breath to enter into you, and ye shall live. And I will lay sinews upon you, and I will bring flesh upon you, and cover you with skin, and put breath in you, and ye shall live, and ye shall know that I am the Lord. Dead, dried bones, having muscle, sinew, and flesh and skin, breath and life, and knowledge. But more than just knowledge here, a relationship with God. What is he talking about here? What is the point of this vision? Now, what would you do if you were Ezekiel? Some of us might have a little debate with God. God, they're bones. They're dried bones. Preaching at, I mean, I know preaching at some of the people in Babylon is like preaching to dead bones. But this is a whole nother story. Well, just to let you know, these dry bones are a picture of people people dead, of people scattered. In fact, we're going to learn about who these people are specifically. Because here, Ezekiel's been commanded to prophesy, to preach to these dry bones. So, verse 7, Ezekiel writes, so I prophesied as I was commanded, and as I prophesied, there was a noise, and behold, a shaking. 
and the bones came together, bone to bone. There's a song that talks about the hip bone joining to the thigh bone, you know, all that going right down through. I am actually curious, though. I'm wondering how old of a generation I am. If you're 20 or under, have you ever heard any song like that? Really? Some of you are culturally. Or are you just not afraid to raise your hand? Yeah, there's songs written about this passage. Some of them get it right, and some of them don't have a clue what it's really all about. But nonetheless, this was a vision that Ezekiel saw. Bones were joined to bones. The toe bones to the foot bone, the foot bone to the leg bone, the leg bone to the hip bone, or the thigh bone, then the thigh bone to the hip bone. And I'm not using the right names, I know, you know. We should use the femur. And things like that. All these bones, they joined together. I told you some of my pictures were going to be creepy. Looky, these dried bones start joining together in the midst of this all. Behold... Verse 8, and when I beheld, lo, the sinews and the flesh came up upon them, and skin covered them above, but there was no breath in them. They were there as a dead body. No breath. Then said he unto me, prophesy unto the wind. Prophesy, son of man, and say to the wind, Thus saith the Lord God, Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe upon these slain, that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and breath came into them, and they lived, and stood up upon their feet an exceeding great army. Wow! Here's a valley full of dead bones, and you know I don't have a picture. I probably should have just a picture of normal people because they were all dry, dead bones. There was a shaking, and they came together bone to bone. Sinews and flesh came upon them, and then the wind blew, and they came alive. They began to breathe a great host of them. And you might say, that makes for a really interesting vision. And I bet I could write a silly song about it. <laughs> and people have. And they've written the silly songs about it. But what does it really mean? Now, we could sit here and we could start discussing what we think it means. But I have an idea. How about we start first and see if God tells us what it means? Because some people have tried to invent and come up with ideas of who them bones are all kinds of ideas. And uh, some of them are quite interesting. And some of them might be very significant or spiritually meaningful to certain people. And although we may be able to draw analogies or applications from this, this vision has an actual interpretation and has an actual meaning. And regardless of what applications we may draw from it in our own personal lives or in our modern era, it has its own meaning, and we have to start there and acknowledge it. So I have the first question I have. Who in the world are these dry bones? Well, instead of us trying to guess and think about it, let's look and see if God tells us. Verse 11, Ezekiel 37, 11. Then he said unto me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Oh, the house of Israel is scattered all across the world like dead bones, beginning with Ezekiel. So it's the house, the whole house of Israel. That includes the ten northern tribes, which are not lost, as some people try to say, the ten northern tribes, as well as the southern two tribes of Judah, the whole house of Israel, are his dry, dead bones scattered. Behold, they say, our bones are dried, and our hope is lost. We are cut off for our parts. Hmm. What's sad is that this is true. Israel Jews, even to this day, many 
most are indeed with no hope and feel cut off and are cut off. The reason is because they haven't life. They haven't the Holy Spirit. Both in historical times and even now in the church age. Lost and cut off for our parts. And so, God continues to explain the vision. Therefore prophesy and say unto them, Thus saith the Lord God, Behold, O my people, I will open your graves and cause you to come up out of your graves and will bring you into the land of Israel. Ah, this is interesting. What's being described now is a prophecy. A prophecy of a time in which Israel will be spiritually dead in graves scattered all around the world. This is where this prophecy is at today. The whole house of Israel is scattered all over the world, and in a way you could say in graves. One of the largest populations of Jews today is in New York City, not in Israel, in New York City, a city, one city. You could say that that's one of the graves where they're at. But look what God says. I'm going I'm to take you up out of your graves and... I'm going to bring you into the land of Israel. That means that Jewish people will be regathered to their land. You might think, well, didn't this happen in the days of Ezra? Well, if we keep looking at the bigger, bigger, bigger picture of Ezekiel and all of the passages, there's some prophecies here that are a whole lot greater and bigger than was fulfilled in the days of Nehemiah or Ezra or Jerubbabel. Prophecies that have yet to be fulfilled. They haven't been fulfilled. And if we put it in the context of all the other prophecies, we know that to be so. For here they'll be gathered again to the land of Israel. Is that what has perhaps been happening within the last 70 years? Perhaps. Perhaps. And ye shall know that I am the Lord when I have opened your graves, O my people, and brought you up out of your graves and shall put my spirit in you and ye shall live and I shall place in your own land, place you in your own land. Then shall ye know that I, the Lord, have spoken it and performed it, saith the Lord. A prophecy of a nation of Israel, a people of Israel who are believing how exciting that is, especially if you know Jewish people as I do who are lost, though very religious, but are lost. They don't have life. But this promise is speaking of the house of Israel, them having the Spirit of God living in their land as promised. How exciting is that? And as we keep reading, if we read all of these promises in Ezekiel, we find that this is some amazing prophecies where there was a little partial fulfillment, oh, about 70 years after Ezekiel, but yet a greater fulfillment, as we look at the big picture, is yet unfulfilled. And so we hope in these promises, knowing that God keeps his promises. For here, do you see what it says? I, the Lord, have spoken it. God always keeps his promises. And then he goes on, and he has a prophecy for Ezekiel. Can my Ezekiel come and help me again? He has another assignment to him. For it says in verse 15, the word of the Lord came again unto me, saying, Moreover, thou son of man, take thee one stick and ride upon it for Judah and for the children of Israel, his companions. Where's your marker? Did you already lose it? Did he leave his marker over there? <laughs> or maybe you're supposed to carve it? Aha! Hey. Take a stick and write on it for Judah. Well, you all know who Judah is, right? Judah is a southern kingdom, specifically the tribes of Judah and Simeon, although Simeon seemed to be assimilated into Judah, and so something it may be what we refer to as Judah and Benjamin. But Judah, the southern kingdom, the southern nation, which has been its own kingdom for, oh my, 400 years. So we one stick here, the Lord says to him, right upon it for Judah and for the children of Israel, his companions. Then take another stick and write upon it 
For Joseph, the stick of Ephraim, and for all the house of Israel, his companions. Oh, so we have two sticks here. Does that sound like what we've had for, oh, almost 400 years? Two sticks here. One representing Judah, the southern kingdom. And one representing Israel, the northern kingdom. Here you can see here, you notice some different words used. Judah is symbolized with the southern kingdom. Joseph Ephraim, Ephraim was Joseph's son, is associated with the northern kingdom because that was, was the tribe from which their first king was. And so we have these two kingdoms. Boy, I tell you, you know one of the reasons why I like Ezekiel is he loves, God has him do object lessons after object lessons. Two sticks, two nations. This one here, catch it has already been carried away captive. This one here, oh yeah, it too has already been carried away captive. <laughs> Got to work in your blind throw for catching it. They too have been carried away captive. But God now gives them a symbol where God says to Ezekiel, join them one to another into one stick. Hmm. I don't know how Ezekiel did that. Well, we keep reading here. God has a message for him about these here. For when the children of thy people shall speak unto thee, saying, Wilt thou not show us what thou meanest by these things? You know, Ezekiel, you've done some pretty crazy things. Like, what's this one mean? What's this one mean? What meanest thou by these things? Say unto them, thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I will take the stick of Joseph, which is in the hand of Ephraim, and the tribes of Israel his fellows, and I will put them with him, even with the stick of Judah, and make them one stick, and they shall be one in my hand. A prophecy of the kingdom united. They shall be one in my hand, and the sticks whereon thy rightest shall be in thine hand before their eyes. And say unto them, Thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I will take the children of Israel from among the heathen, whither they have gone, and I will gather them on every side and bring them into their own land, and I will make them one nation and land upon the mountains of Israel. And one king shall be king to them all. And they shall be no more two nations, neither shall they be divided into two kingdoms any more. And you might think, well, didn't this happen with Jerubbabel? No, Jerubbabel never was a king. And in fact, as we keep on reading, we find out there's no way this is talking about Jerubbabel. In fact, hmm, if we were to look at our timeline again, that King Zedekiah isn't even really a king. And he's not a king. But God says he's going to join the two tribes together. They're going to be one kingdom, one nation, and there's going to be one king. Look at this. this is, you can't miss this. This is really exciting. There's, there's going to be one king. Now my page turned, didn't it? How did my page turn? There we are. Verse 28 and I will make them one nation in the land upon the mountains of Israel. Notice there, that means the mountains of Israel. If you've ever been to Israel, there's the mountains and the hills, and there are the mountains that lead up to the city of Jerusalem on the top of Mount Zion. And one king shall be king to them all, and they shall be no more two nations. Neither shall they be divided into two kingdoms anymore at all. Neither shall they defile themselves anymore with their idols, nor with their detestable things, nor with any of their transgressions. But I will save them out of all their dwelling places wherein they have sinned, and I will cleanse them. So shall they be my people, and I will be their God. A people not only joined together as one nation, but a people spiritually restored with God. He will be their God, which is very sad. Because even though they worship a God, Jehovah, in this day, 
It's a God they made up. For if they truly worship the true God, they would worship, oh, the guy who it's talked about next. Look what it says in verse 24. And David, my servant, shall be king over them. And you might be thinking, really? Is David going to be resurrected and reign as king over them? Well, let me give you a little secret. All of the descendants of David in the way that the Jewish mind thinks, and even in some ways ours, you know, we have the house of Windsor. Why is it called that? They're all identified with David, all of those kings. And there's one coming. Look here. David, my servant, shall be king over them, and they shall all have one shepherd, and they shall also walk in my judgments and observe my statutes to do them, and they shall dwell in the land that I have given unto Jacob, my servant, wherein your fathers have dwelt, and they shall dwell therein, even they and their children and their children's children forever. And my servant David shall be their prince forever. Moreover, I will make a covenant of peace with them. It shall be an everlasting covenant with them. And I will place them and multiply them and set them in my sanctuary in the midst of them forevermore. My tabernacle also shall be with them. Yea, I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And the heathen shall know that I, the Lord, do sanctify Israel when my sanctuary shall be in the midst of them forevermore. You see, this David is the greater son of David, the same David in the Gospels that is referred to as Jesus. Jesus, the eternal God, the one who in the book of Revelation is said to reign from Jerusalem for a thousand years. And at the end of that thousand years, it says that he takes his kingdom and he delivers it up into his father and it becomes an eternal kingdom forever and ever. And here is a promise is made all the way back to Jacob are being foretold as prophecy here. And here's what's intriguing here because it talks about this sanctuary. And then as we go on, actually, in this, we find, remember I told you all kinds of chapters about, that are like Leviticus? They give us details about a temple. And you might look at this temple and say, oh, that looks familiar. You're right, it does. But it's not. It has very notable dis differences and distinguishing factors that are different from the previous temple or tabernacle. One of the most prominent is the way that the altar is positioned, the brazen altar. Another is that there is no Ark of the Covenant. Another one that's very fascinating is the use of salt and sacrifices. All kinds of details are given about this temple that, have never been, that has never been built, has never been fulfilled, which is why I take it and conclude that thus the Lord has said it, it's yet to be built, perhaps in the millennium the thousand-year reign of Christ. In fact, I think there's a lot of evidence for that. All of this is built, and all there's, there's immense detail given to it from Ezekiel 40 through 48 of this temple that will be built. There's a lot of talk about the promised land. Well, before we go on to that, could you take your Bibles and turn to one particular little reference in this? In chapter... Um, 43, look at chapter 43, when it talks about this temple being built. Remember in Ezekiel, Ezekiel saw the vision of the glory of the Lord departing from Jerusalem, departing. It went from the most holy place to the threshold, moved on out then to the mountain, and then implied gone. Well, look now in chapter 43, after in the midst of all the details of measuring, I mean, there's immense details. People have been able to build advanced models of this temple due to the details given in these chapters. Verse 43, afterward, he brought me to the gate, even to the gate that looketh toward the east, and behold, Ezekiel 43, 2, the glory of the God of Israel came from the way of the east, just the way he had departed, the glory he sees in this vision you know what? It's returning. Verse 4, And the glory of the Lord came into the house by the way of the gate, whose prospect is toward the east. He saw it return in this vision. So the Spirit took me up and brought me to the inner court, and behold, the glory of the Lord filled the house. 
But in the early parts of the book, Ezekiel is telling the people, seeing the visions of the glory of the Lord departing. He's now talking of restoration. He's talking of a future, a glorious period in which another temple will be built, different from the one they've ever seen. We're there. He accounts that the glory of the Lord is there. What a day that will be. Further details are given. We see, you know, the glory of the Lord is, was represented in the tabernacle returning. But then in the latter chapters of this book, we have detailed descriptions of the tribal allotment of the land. This is intriguing to me. You see the map here and all of the stripes and the bars going across this here? And you might say, that doesn't look like Israel. Actually, this looks more like the real Israel than any of most of the maps we have. Because the promise is made to, to, promises made to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, and to the 12 sons of Jacob is they would have this promised land, and it would be from the river of Egypt. So Egypt is down here. River of Egypt, and right there is the river of Egypt. And from the Mediterranean Sea, from the Great Sea, to the Euphrates River. And the Euphrates River is way over here. And isn't that interesting? There's Babylon right on the other side of the Euphrates River. Now, the part of the reason why you've never seen a map look like this is because a huge percentage of this land presently today and for thousands of years has been uninhabitable, treacherous, wilderness, and desert. Whole region in here. So if people wanted to go to Babylon from Jerusalem, they didn't just go this way. They would never make it. They would never survive, especially an army. So how'd they go? They went up along the river, came down. But we have prophecies also in the scriptures that speak of the desert being made of fruit place. And the details of the allotments of the tribes, the historical tribes, are detailed specifically of how they will be, of how the Levites will have their portion, and of how the prince, this David, the greater son of David, will have his portion in all of this. And as the whole book continues on down through, all of these details Remember, the book began with the calling of Ezekiel, the 20 chapters warning of judgment and dispersion, of death, of trouble, the warnings to the nations. And then the entire rest of the book speaks of the restoration of the people to the building of a sanctuary, to the regathering of the literal nation of Israel with specific tribes to their land and given specific tribal allotments in the land that had been promised way, 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 way back to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Fulfilled. It's never looked like that. You've never seen a map in the history of Israel look like that. Will it look exactly, exactly, exactly like that? No, it's, it's, there's, there's an artist's rendition of it and how it all lays out, I, I don't know exactly. But we know the basic arrangement of them. And I imagine it's not going to be straight lines like, you know, um, anytime there's straight lines, there's problems, if you ever notice that on a map. They follow natural things, and I wonder what kinds of things are going to be revealed in that desert. You know, that time... And in Jeremiah and Isaiah and Ezekiel speak of this day of restoration. We learn about lion laying down and being led by a child. We learn about the lion and the wolf living together. We learn about the child playing at the hole of the asp, the deadly poisonous serpent. We read about a land where the curse has been removed, or for the most part removed, where Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, reigns as king, where evil is immediately judged when it comes outward. Those, we don't have time to go into all the details, but we do find out that man's hearts still need to be restored. And in all of this, look again with me how this book ends. This region here, the city, is measured. It gives a detail in the last verse of Ezekiel 48. It was round about 18,000 measures. And the name of the city from that day shall be the Lord 
is there. All the glory of Ezekiel summed up with a calling to the people to seek the Lord. And so this whole book is a book for the house of Israel. And so you might wonder and say, so what does it have to do with us as Christians? I'm glad you asked. Because you know God's desire has always been to dwell with his most cherished creation. Us, mankind, made in his image. And today, he longs to be there. Where? Inside of me. Inside of you. Inside of all of us. There is no temple in Jerusalem today, in this age, in the age of the church. We are his temple. And he lives in us. Does he live in you? Is the Lord there in you? Do you believe on him? Have you received the Lord Jesus Christ? Have you received the Holy Spirit? And then just again a reminder of what we talked about last Sunday morning. As a believer, as a Christian, do you walk in the Holy Spirit? That means do you live your life in him? We're going to talk a little bit more about that later this morning too from a New Testament passage. Do you live in him or do you quench him? Is he flowing through you as life and hope and joy and peace? Is he living through you as hope? Or do you like a hose that is pinched, kinked, quench him? The Holy Spirit living inside of you. Quench not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby you are sealed unto the day of redemption. I pray the Lord is there in your hearts. And I pray that as you live your lives, you live it walking in him, filled with him, and not quenching him. So the Lord is there in this prophecy, looking to that day in that beautiful city. Is the Lord today in you? Gracious Lord, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for revealing to us all of the detail through Ezekiel of what you have promised and covenanted with your people, the nation of Israel. And as we see this, may we rest assured that you're a promise-keeping God, for you have said it. May we believe it. And at the same time, you have said that all have sinned and come short of your glory. And yet, you came down and became one of us so that you could die for us, so that you could rise from the dead, so that our sins could be forgiven, so that we could have life. Lord Jesus, we thank you that your spirit dwells in us. We pray for those here this morning who have not received you, that today they would believe and receive you. Dear Holy Spirit, draw them to yourself this day. Glorify yourself in each of us, and may we walk in you, being filled with you, moment by moment, day by day, always. We praise and thank you now, we pray in your name. Amen.